Oh, hey, hello there, everybody, as I take this lid off here. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional Malpractice. Get the mic center, too. Promotional Malpractice live chat, episode 134. Today's date is the 15th of April. Payday, tax day, depending on how you've done your taxes, could be great or bad. But uh, hopefully this will be great, this live chat today. So we'll talk about UFC on Fox 15 today, the whole fight card, the main event, obviously the co-main event that fell through. But anything else you want to talk about on that card, we'll get to. Um, we'll also talk about what happened last week to the extent that that's relevant in Poland and in Florida and in the Bren Center, Bren Event Center in Irvine, California with Bellator. Um, news that just broke from my colleague Ariel Hawani that it looks like Phil Davis is on the verge of signing with Bellator. We can talk about that as well. So a lot to get to. Conor McGregor's tattoo, Nate Diaz's future, Matt Brown's next fight. There's always, as always, a lot going on. Best place to comment, of course, is on MMA Fighting. Dot com in the comment section. Comments that turn green get preference, but not exclusivity. Um, follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Please email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com. If I have not returned your email from last week, uh, I will this week. Uh, as you can see, I got a fresh haircut, shaved a little bit. I have to go to New York right after this uh, for the beat tomorrow. There's going to be an MMA beat tomorrow at 5 p.m. East Coast time. And then, of course, I have a video shoot tonight as well for some other stuff. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, okay, without further ado, the last thing I would say is today's chat is not officially brought to you by what I am drinking, a mini Coke Zero, which I know these things are terrible for you, but I don't really care. Um, if you be would be so kind as to please get on social media, Pinterest, Google+, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever the case may be, and please share this video or this post whenever you see it, whether it's live right now or at some point in the distant future whenever you actually see this. That would be hugely, hugely appreciated. Okay. With that out of the way, let's begin. All right. First question. Strawweight scramble. Greatest of weeks. Following the strawweight upset last Saturday and some of the discussion after, I found myself curious about something, and I hope you don't mind my question being too silly. Do you consider the current scramble in the rankings of the women's strawweight to be good, a.k.a. a number of good fighters with results that are constantly surprising, or a bad thing, a lack of true contenders for the champion and no clear idea who the great fighters in it are for the division at the moment? What I would say is uh, I would definitely consider it a good thing, right? Because here's why. First of all, I don't think that was the best Joanne Calderwood we've ever seen, but her performance not being relevant to the discussion, at least not central to the discussion. What I would say is I think it's great that we have this happening. And the reason why is for a couple of reasons, or maybe even more than that. Number one, we've seen what it's like to have a contendership and then a truly dominant champion advance weight. I'm not saying that's the worst situation in the world. Ronda Rossi is the world's biggest star, but you know, there is at least, I think no matter what you want to say about Ronda or the ability for her to attract at the box office, these fights are fairly boring, right? I mean, they're exciting for they're being short, but the, that's not the same as a knockdown, drag out fight that goes five rounds, Gustafson versus Jones type situation. It's just not, you know. Um, and that's a that's a dominant champion slash contender series as well. But uh, I just mean um, there are all kinds of situations that are great. One of them is in a division's establishment, everyone fighting for king of the hill position. And so what I would say is. Um, what I like about it is I don't know that if this were a sustained phenomenon that I would be pleased. But what we're seeing is the division 
this division 115 is globally good right which is to say you know look i don't think heavyweight is globally good but things like lightweight and welterweight you know organizations like bellator and World Series of fighting can have good lightweights and welterweights because there are so many globally um and it looks like women's straw weight might be the women's equivalent of that for now anyway and so what you have now is a bit of things bit unsettled. Carla Esparza losing her title. We'll see how long Joanna and Jacek can hold it, but there's certainly a, a bit of, you know, uh, um, you know, tumult um, happening there. And with everyone else, with these other contenders sort of rising and falling, uh, uh, you know, event by event, I think what you're seeing is, one, a proper establishment of the order, but, but more than that, um, it's just evidence of the growth in real time, right? We're seeing the division change right before our eyes. We're seeing everything look uh, different right before our eyes, that whatever hierarchy was established about the ultimate fighter may have been good as a base point, And whatever was established previously that in Invicta and other shows as well was a nice kicking off point. But the real order of things is beginning to establish itself. Again, the Calderwood example isn't the best one, but it does at least illuminate the other idea, the larger idea that this division is really thick it's full of contenders it's globally good it's only to continue to get better and i think more to that point um eventually i think you're going to settle into a clear hierarchy but right now you're in this scramble and everyone's hustling for position and that makes it a lot of fun so this you know if everyone was constantly changing titles 10 years down the road I, you know i don't know if that would be great or not uh barbus is here but um for now at this moment, as I speak to you, I think it's pretty great. All right, let's see here. Uh, Joanne Calderwood, fighting skills have been overrated. Agree or disagree? Um, I think what I would say is slightly. Slightly. She was sort of looked at as, I don't know, the top choice or the you know, the obvious next person to contend for a title. But I do think that she was viewed with um, not a measure of skepticism. She was viewed with, I mean, she did not enter into the UFC with some sort of like phony, uh, disreputable identity, right? She entered the UFC as someone people looked at as maybe a dark horse contender for t a title shot or even to hold the title itself. Um, and I think maybe we have to dial that back a little bit um, because as, so as folks have noted, even in her one UFC win, she didn't look like amazingly awesome. She looked good, but she didn't look, you know, world beater. This is the next coming of uh, female fighting Jesus that I think some had suspected she could be if she had turned a corner. So in that sense, I would say she has been slightly overrated. But what I would remind you is, and I do think it's fair, is the good things you've seen from her, the reputation she built um, competing on the regional scene, these are real things. She did really well. She had, I don't know what personal issues she's had, but folks close to her have, have said that what had happened to her, whatever that may be, was real, and it really affected her quite badly. She didn't, if you listen to the Monday Morning Analyst, I went over this, there was a couple of things she did less so in the striking, but certainly in the grappling, that literally made no sense. It made no sense. And it was beneath what, not just what we thought of her, what we know of her. I'm talking, I mean, the most, like, almost like a zombie, just, just walking through the event, not thinking about things clearly at all. 
Um, and I, I would specifically point to her armbar defense, many portions of it. And I would encourage you to listen to the Monday morning analyst. I sort of go through the different things she could have done. But the last of the sequence was that after Morose had readjusted the armbar, and by doing that, she had brought Calderwood's uh, wrist close to her own face. She had gone full inverted. And then she had used her outside leg to clamp down on the neck of Calderwood. Man, that is a locked-in armbar. She hasn't stretched it, but she has set up all of the pieces so that all that has to happen at that point is extension. And Calderwood, without trying to slip her elbow out, either the side or the bottom, just stands. Just stands right up. Like, (laughs) I mean, maybe you were going to slam her, but... I would only recommend slanting someone as like a, either a last resort or if your arm is basically freed and you need to just get that last bit off of them. Not if you are in a position where you could not be more locked in if you tried. That just doesn't compute. It doesn't it was like it was it was as if she was just giving up and I'm not saying that she was, but that's how it looked. That's exactly how it looked. Uh, it just is. A, I mean, no one does that in grappling except absolute white belts, which I know she's not. So to me, she just wasn't all there. She wasn't thinking clearly, and I don't think that is really indicative of her talent. But to your point, I think maybe there's some recalibration of just how high we have to, you know, review her potential. Thoughts on Connor's tattoo and tattoos in general? Yeah, look at here, boy. Well, here's what I would say. I'm looking at a picture of it. <laughs> I don't quite understand the placement of it, although I'll say if you someone said you had to put a tiger there, that's probably the best way to do it, where the belly button of McGregor sort of looks as like a shadow on the nose of the tiger. I don't know why it's on his belly, because if he gets fat later, that's going to be really weird, right? Um, the tiger itself is well done. The placement, again, I'm not saying that's the best placement, but if someone said you had to put it there, this is the best way to do it. Um, but what can I say, man? Young men make really poor decisions. I've got some tattoos that most of them are terrible as well. Um, I've got a couple of good ones, but I've got a lot of bad ones. And then when did I get them? When I was in the Marine Corps, making dumb decisions about my life. Oh, it'll be great if I get, you know, all these tattoos on my, on my ribs and, They're terrible. I have two good tattoos. I got one on my ribs and the one on the top of my back, and then that's it. And and even those might be terrible too. It might just be even my own poor taste. Um, but yeah, so he paid a lot of money for that. It's drawn. I'm looking at it. It's drawn well. But what I would say is like, a tattooing is not nearly as taboo as it used to be. Um, it's certainly I think much better as an art form than it once was. And it's just quite prevalent in mixed martial arts, but it's quite prevalent in mixed martial arts because you're dealing with a demographic that, um, you know, when it comes to life choices, <laughs> uh, and I made some bad ones too. This is how I know it's a bad choice because I've made bad choices just like that. You know, when you get a tattoo when you're 21, you think, oh man, I'm going to love this forever. And then you turn 35 and you're like, you're the dumbest person I've ever met in my life. And then you say that looking into the mirror. Trust me, I've had that conversation before with myself. Uh, well, whatever. Yeah. Someone says skillfully inked. Correct. Horrendously ugly tattoo. I think that's a fairly good way to describe it. I mean, the guy who did it clearly is quite talented, quite gifted. It's just, I just don't get it. I, I, yeah. Okay. But well, whatever, man. 
Whatevs. Luke, I feel like someone had definitely a word with the referees before the UFC Poland card. Very quick stand-ups and constantly telling fighters to work even after only a few seconds of clinching. Did the UFC do this to try and minimize the risk of boring fights because it was their Poland debut and wanted to impress on their first time in another country? Also, are you a fan of pushing the action more like this? I am not. I only like to see stand-ups and separations when totally necessary after a lot of inactivity. Finally, what's your view on no separations or stand-ups whatsoever? Joe Rogan had often talked about how I'd like to see this. Thanks. You know, I have really changed my perspective on this. Truly, I have. Uh, you guys know that I'm a, I mean, maybe I'm not, but I, I think in some ways I'm a bit of a purist about the sport in the sense that, you know, I, for example, have nothing against uh, Phil Brooks, otherwise known as CM Punk personally, but I don't find the, uh, and, you know, God bless him, I hope he does well, but I don't personally find it very interesting that he wants to compete in mixed martial arts. There are guys in my gym and many gyms across the country. I mean, we have guys in my gym who got their black belts under Pedro Sauer and have six or seven pro fights under their career. They would wash him. They would wash him. You know, this is not... And that's just my gym, and there are hundreds of gyms like this. You know, so to me, the idea of him competing is not particularly compelling in that regard. Um, but uh, what I would say is the following. And if you watch enough of combat sports generally, you really – and you see – here, come here, buddy. Come say hi. Barbus had to go to the vet this week because he's an idiot and got in a fight at the dog park, which I think he won. What's up, man? Say hi. <laughs> Barbus, your breath smells like a fish market. Okay, let's go. Um, I've come a long way on this one. Watching jujitsu to me, and I'll get to, I'll circle back to the referee. This is all relevant to the discussion. Watching jujitsu to me has, I, I love it. In fact, I, I watch all forms of it, but there's a lot of problems with the rules. Number one, there's no tech falls. I really think the way wrestling does tech falls is important. Everyone's like, you can always get the submission. It can always happen. That's great. It is ridiculous to me that someone can go up 20 to nothing on someone and the match is going to continue. Just call it. If you, if you surrender 20 points to someone, the chances of you getting a submission are so infinitesimal that it's not worth the uh, tax that everyone has to pay by not speeding the process up. It really sort of uniformly brings down the experience because we have to wait out the time clock because this one person has just enough submission defense to not lose by submission, but to surrender enough points to make the whole thing totally ridiculous and unpalatable. You know, wrestling doesn't do that. It's like, you know what? If you lose, I think well, I forget how many it is, 12, 14, 16 points. I can't remember anymore. But if you lose an X number of points, they just call it off. You just got worked. You got worked. And that's the end of it. Or the point differential anyway. Uh, and I, I think that's great. I think if you surrender that many points, you deserve to lose because you can pin someone in wrestling too. Although that's much harder to do. And it's only one way to pin, but, or at least one, you know, there's not, there's knee bars, there's arm bars, there's chokes. There's just a pin in wrestling. Although there's obviously different entries to it, but, uh, you get the idea. So to me, like, I think that having some kind of a tech fall rule would speed the process up. Number two, um, you know, I think the way wrestling and even they could do a better job of it calls stalling and then restarts, I think is awesome. It makes the action go like this. I don't think I'm not, I'm not a fan of standups as much. Okay. Because I do think if someone's working underneath, then you really need to let them work. But, and we can have that debate about what work looks like. What I would say, and it was on display on this UFC Poland card. To me, the standups are not the issue in that, uh, that card. I did not find anything particularly egregious 
Okay. But the clinching along the fence, which I talked about on the Monday Morning Analyst, is getting out of control. It is getting out of control. And the reason why I'm saying it's getting out of control, look, I am not interested in the UFC being a regional promoter, which is what they kind of become when they go to these cards like Poland. Yes, they have world-class, top-of-the-food-chain fighters, more so concentrated at the top of the card, but the rest of that card, these are not people who are UFC-ready, even if they're developmental prospects who one day will deserve to be in the UFC and one day might be a champion. But at the stage of their development, they're, they're still embryonic in that way. And so a lot of these guys, and by the way, some of them are just never going to be high level, okay? Or elite level anyway. Uh, and what you see is guys at that level, a lot of the times, use the fence as a place to hold the fight because they lack the skills to operate in free space. I think that is just beyond the point of being arguable. And what happened at UFC Poland was less about stand-ups on the ground. That, we can, I think, is a separate debate. We have got to start enforcing more clinch breaks. Holy God, it was terrible to watch. It was terrible to watch, even if there was good flurries and moments of action. I think what you see with elite fighters is, yes, they will use the cage, too, for takedowns, to, to control in the clinch for striking, for any number of different things, to fake a, a takedown or whatever. But when it doesn't work, they naturally get out of the position on their own, either because they revert, they're reversed, either because it's successful, either because they decide to back out and, and reset. But you don't see Frankie Edgar clinch with someone and then slowly walk them back into the cage. Oh, my God. I must have seen it 50 times on Saturday. It was unbearable. It was unbearable. This is what I'm talking about when I say there deserves to – oh, he's the best fighter in this country, and he's the best fighter in, in that country, and she's the best fighter in this place. I don't care. There's a common standard of excellence, and either you make it or, or you do not. And if you do not, that does not mean you are bad forever. It may just mean you're on your way up, but you're not quite there. You're still working it out. There are purple belts at gyms across the country who I know one day are going to be black belt world champions, but right now they're just purple belts. You do not deserve to be in the black belt division or whatever you want to call it, however you want to make the argument. That's what's happening here. And you get some guys who just don't even, they're just not at all UFC caliber. And so what you see happening is, Tons of clinching, tons of leaning on each other, but they don't really have great takedowns, and they don't really have a potent clinch. And worse, the other person doesn't really have good clinch breaks, and the other person doesn't really have any kind of active responses to this scenario. So they just stand there forever. Oh, it was killing me. It was killing me. It was killing me. It was killing me. If I were a ref and you're just leaning on a guy and you have one underhook and you're hammer fisting his thigh, bro, we are getting broken up immediately. Immediately. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. I'm not saying hammer, uh, hammer fist to the thighs are the worst thing in the world, but if this is the third time you've been broken up and this is all you can manage, you're getting broken up. You're getting broken up. This you got to restart that all the time. Ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. And I... And I truly think, and it was funny last night, and I was watching Best of WEC. Now, of course, I'm sure there was some bad WEC fights. There's bad fights in every organization. It's impossible to avoid. But uh, what I would say was I was watching, and of course, best of means like, you know, we've selected out the bad stuff and put in the good stuff. But what I noticed was all the best stuff they had, there was like zero clinch fighting. Now, I'm not saying clinch fighting is bad. In fact, in fact I think it's good. 
and there was a guy on the regional scene called Kyle Baker. Now he never made it to the high level stuff, but he, and maybe what he tried to do would never work on the high level stuff. But Kyle Baker has a brother named Bo Baker. And these guys fought, I think they may have fought on like uh belt or undercards or even like, um, um, sh- uh, show XC or whatever the case may be M1 cards, I think too, but they fought at a show I was a part of for a couple of years called UWC and Kyle Baker had this bit where he would drag you to the fence, but he would put your back on it and he had these really long arms. So what he would do is he'd secure an overhook on one of your arms and people thought they were getting away, but he had attacks at every range. So if he was above the elbow, he had an attack. If he was just on the wrist, he had an attack. It was like a, a, a trombone. And no matter where you were, he could play a note, man. And he had what I would call standing ground and pounding. And he would light people on fire with it. And it was amazing to watch. He would just wreck people, grab them into clinch, get an overhook, hand was trapped, and bro, it was lights out for you. Um, again, whether this style will work at the highest levels, I don't know. All I'm sort of illuminating is if you want to clinch with someone, that's what needs to happen. You need to get to work on them. Look at, go back and watch Anderson Silva with Rich Franklin. They don't sit there and hang out in 50-50 forever. They get to work. At least Anderson Silva does in this case. So to me, what you see is when you see extended leaning against the cage, someone's either tired, hurt, or just doesn't have the skills. And in all cases, the cage should not be there to save them. It's become like the gi where people just have these attacks, and if you remove the cage, they don't have any more attacks. Guys who just work in the gi and then have nothing no gi. Uh, that, to me, is a big mistake. It's a big problem, and more than stand-ups, that is a bigger issue, especially now that UFC wants to become a semi-regional promoter. Someone says, all the separations were quite necessary. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I, mean, I haven't reviewed every single one of them. Um, and here's another comment that got three wrecks. Mark Goddard yelled at a fighter at one point, something to the effect of, I see your fingertips on the ground. That game won't work. In reference to a fighter attempting to have three points of contact on the mat and eliminate knees as legal strikes while standing, but in a compromised position. What are your thoughts on referees applying their own interpretations to rules in the cage? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Huh. I hadn't thought about that. Well, referees applying their own interpretation. Um, well, in this case, it's a little easier to swallow because the rule is nonsensical, but what if the rule made sense and, and referees were doing it? I don't know. I don't know if there's a blanket rule we can say about that because I think some of these rules, I think generally the way the rules are written that they're, they're, they try to be precise. I think I truly believe that some of the regulators really tried to do their best both to write the rules in a clear and concise way and then provide guidance about what they mean. Um, I guess I'd have to take it case by case. I don't know. I haven't thought enough about it, but it's a great question. All right. Rockhold versus Machida. Luke, do you think Rockhold can pressure Machida the way Weidman did? High pressure with controlled aggression, if not explain otherwise. Well, I wouldn't say that Weidman wrote the blueprint on Machida, but what I would say is he demonstrated that if you walk him back, that Machida is just like... You have to take away his space and you have to take away his ability to have forward movement or much lateral movement for that point. You want to get him backing up and you want to get him trapped against the cage. He's just not nearly as potent there. I mean, remember, where did John Jones put him in a standing guillotine against the fence? If you can control, if you can move him backward and you can control the space in which he operates, he becomes a much more manageable task. When you don't do that, he's a nightmare. He's a nightmare. 
So what I've seen from Rockhold more recently is an ability to move forward on guys. Is an ability to uh, here we go. I got they cowl in me. It's my wife. So I don't know. I, I think listen, I think part of the reason why this fight is so compelling is because Rockhold is a much different guy than he used to be. He was a bit of a really athletic, wild sort of brawler maybe a bit of a strong word but took a lot of risks put it that way and just had this uh, this this gall and determination to persevere through now he's got a a lot of that same intensity but in a much more measured and productive way right his submission game has really come a long way his wrestling game has really come a long way the finesse and striking and the management of the range has become um you know phenomenal so i really like luke ruckle's chances here i'm, I'm picking him to win um but um, so this is high pressure with controlled aggression. Yeah, that's exactly what it, I think it'll be. Um, I also think his ability to man. I mean, listen, I think he has the tools to manage the range. The question is, does he put it into action? Does he put it into action? Because Machida sort of is who he is at this point. And I think Rockhold is finally developing into a finished product. Um, but I'd like to see a little bit more, a little bit more, application of these new skills to really be confident that he can take them to however the highest level because Bisping I really respect but he's fallen short against the very best and Boach is a great competitor but he got reverse triangled and and uh, Costa Filippo is great but he's just not on that level so he's looked really good but this is going to be that test to be like okay can he really tangle with the very upper tier of the division can he really prove that when uh, the rubber meets the road that that he's the guy to get it done we'll see uh, okay, and then thoughts on uh, the draw between Atleti and Madrid. Uh, no one really cares about my opinions on soccer, but suffice to say, I wasn't as unhappy with it as a lot of other fans. They stopped the bleeding. They nearly scored. Oblak was in a ridiculous goalie. What are you going to do? Also, Varane, uh, Varane, however you properly pronounce it, uh, looked amazing. There you go. Uh, true, false. Michael Bisping fights for a UFC title in his career. False. Matt Brown fights for a UFC title again. Um, wait, did Matt Brown ever have a title shot? Am I am I missing something? But am I forgetting a piece of history here? Sorry, my my brain doesn't work properly. Got to be that diet soda gang. Well, no, he didn't fight for a title yet. Yeah, I was about to say. So uh, will he ever fight for a title? Uh, maybe. Silva Diaz 2 happens. I don't know. You know what's weird about that? Like, like Silva wants it and Diaz wants it. Do the fans want it? Because the fight kind of sucked. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't, wasn't awesome, you know? I think everyone kind of expected, or not everyone, but I think a majority of people expected Silva to just walk through him, and he couldn't. And then it was fun when Diaz was laying down, but in retrospect, it's like, it was just weird. It was just weird. Uh, Rampage fights again. Boy, that is the question of the year, isn't it? I don't know, man. I think Rampage, I don't know what kind of advice he's getting. Let me just say, every lawyer that I've ever contacted about his story, every single one of them, to a head, every single one has said he is a fool if he doesn't settle because he's never going to win. Every single one. <laughs> I 
I mean, if that's not consensus, I don't know what is. And we're talking more than five attorneys, you know, with different uh, areas of expertise. I don't know what he's doing. It's his life, though. Uh, to answer the question, does Rampage fight again? I don't. I really don't know how to answer that. He seems to think he can fight in the UFC. Would he ever fight for Bellator again? God, I don't know, man. I'd have to talk to him. I don't know. Brendan Schaub, do you think he can beat guys like Pat Cummings and OSP? What is his ceiling? Because I have, I see him having a tough time at light heavyweight. Well, Cummings, I think he has a really hard time with. Uh, OSP might be a little bit different. I think OSP is a little bit more wild and open, and someone like Brendan Schaub um, might be able to exploit some of that. I think Schaub is a little more calculated and a little more um, by the book with his offense. I don't know that that works against someone like Pat Cummins, who once he clenches with you, he's probably going to take you down and ride you out. So this is why I think generally the effort at light heavyweight is not going to go particularly well for him, given uh, – how he operates and what the division looks like. But I will say that there probably are some winnable fights for him there. So we'll see how he's match made. But to answer your question, like, you know, when you, I mean, we'll see what happens with Phil Davis, but Phil Davis, I don't think would have much of an issue. Um, although maybe, maybe, you know what? Phil Davis's takedowns have, I don't know against the very best. They look like they're non-existent against guys just below that. They look fantastic. So it's really hard to say. I would say he probably would have some success against Brendan Schaub. Um, if he doesn't resign with Bellator, so, but open OSP, a little more wide open, I think. Someone says Cummins puts him on his ass in twenty seconds or less every round. Uh, let's see, and then someone says I think Brendan would do really well to be honest. Could re-energize his career. He's a talented fighter. The heavyweight seemed too small for the division. Yeah, but it's not a matter of size. I mean, yes, he'll have he'll look relatively big as a light heavyweight, but does he move quick enough um, for guys who are naturally more along that size? I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Pettis, what do you make of Pettis versus jury matchup? Counter-Strike Boar or Quick KO? This was a funny fight when it was announced because it got a real polarized reaction, right? There were some that were like, oh, man, I had someone tweet me, why does the UFC hate Miles Jury? Well... I don't think the UFC hates Miles Jury. I think they like him a lot. Um, but uh, the point being there was that he had no chance against Pettis. And then I saw people being like, well, didn't Pettis just lose to a guy who has, like, you know, effective offensive wrestling? You know, I'm not saying that's necessarily Miles is, like, most amazing talent, but he's got some of that. You know, why would you match him up against him? Why would you not put him against Nate Diaz? Uh, which is a fair question, actually, I think, in terms of matchmaking. But neither here nor there. Um, I actually favor the former argument over the latter. I favor the idea that this is a very winnable fight for Pettis. Let me say that a little bit differently. Let me go back. Let me split the difference. Because when you split the difference, you say the following. Look, here's who I would favor. I would favor Pettis in that fight. And I would favor Pettis. Defensive wrestling is better than it looked against, uh, than it did against um, um, Dos Anjos. I think that in Chicago, there will be some kind of hometown reenterization, you know, uh, fire under his ass kind of, you know, momentum. Um, and I just think that, you know, if he can stop Gilbert Melendez's takedowns, for the most part, I think he can stop Miles Jury. I don't think Miles Jury has better offensive takedowns 
particularly against the fence in that kind of way. I also don't think he'll have a sustainability to keep him down. And one has to wonder after that fight, you know, he got lit up on the feet. We all know that, but like, you know, striking is always going to be his pedigree. So there's things he can tighten up there, but you have to think like, okay, if you're Anthony Pettis, what did you take home after that fight? Uh, maybe my takedown defense and scrambling needs some work. Not that he hasn't worked on it, but like a heavy emphasis on it in ways that he probably hasn't emphasized before. But let me split the difference here. And when you do that, you say, look, I favor Pettis to win for all the reasons I just mentioned, but is it crazy to think that jury can win? I don't think it's crazy at all. And I think that's exactly why you got that polarized reaction. So I think in retrospect, kind of an interesting fight, isn't it? This is a fight that one guy should win, but is just interesting enough given the particular liabilities of one and the at least good enough strengths of the other to create some some chaos and some problems and some unexpected scenarios. So for me, if I was Anthony Pettis, I would say, okay, if I'm on my A game, and I come prepared, and I do the things I'm supposed to do, this is not a fight I should lose. It's just not. It's not a fight I should lose. Um, but if I don't, if I look past this guy, if I think, well, you know, Cowboy Cerrone had no issue with him, I won't have an issue with him, you may, you you could get yourself into some problems there. because he's Because, look, jury probably watched that fight and went, ooh. There are some takedown issues in there. Maybe we, maybe we, maybe we, maybe we looked past the old Guido fight too quickly. So I certainly did. Uh, Muay Clinch. A long time ago in this live chat, I asked you about the lack of hammer fists being thrown in MMA and then being replaced with elbows. And I've also noticed this with the Muay Thai clinch. It's been a long time since I've seen someone plumb and just unload knees to the midsection of their opponent like Anderson used to. Matt Brown's offensive clinch work is arguably the best in the game right now, but I'm struggling to understand why fighters seem to just battle for underhooks in the middle of the octagon and along the cage where they could possibly just go for a plum and try to use offense instead of battling for positions they don't necessarily need to. Is my assessment correct, or am I not making any sense to you at all? No, I think it's an interesting question. Here's what I would say. Look, if you don't – what happened to Gabriel Gonzaga on Saturday? What happened to him? When he was 50-50 in the clinch and went ear-to-ear, -ear, or at least ear-to-cheek, he wasn't in much trouble, was he? He could drop down for a level change. He could do all kinds of things. But when he waited out so that there's now space between him and Krokop, chest to chest, when he got lazy, and he wasn't lazy for five minutes. He was lazy for five, not even, two, three seconds, if that. What happened? He got fed an elbow over the top, and then another one. So my point being to you is um, a couple of things. One, if you haven't mastered the, the clinch game when you're fighting for underhooks, um, going for two hands you know, behind the head like that uh, exposes yourself. And I think a lot of guys are a little bit worried about that. Uh, that's one part. The second part, in reference to Gonzaga, is if, if uh, you're loose with that position at all, if it's not a total place where you can dominate, um, you're going to get eaten alive. And I think the third is just creativity. Like Matt Brown is good at it because Matt Brown has just made it a point of emphasis. Matt Brown has made it, you know, something that he really wants to work on and he's gotten really good at it. You see this in any kind of combat sport. It's like Jordan Burroughs' double or, um, you know, um, Dylan Danis' knee bars or uh, the Meow's Barambolo back takes. It's just something that they that they're known for because they have it's such a point of emphasis and maybe they were naturally good at it anyway 
but they were not they they worked their ass off on something they were pretty good at and it turned into something even greater uh, i think that's what i would say here so to answer your point one, I just think it's a lack of skills because people just don't emphasize the tie plum as much. Two, the tie plum is such a traditional thing. Now, Matt Brown has adapted it. He can go one hand and then with the other hand do things. Kyle Baker, as I mentioned before, that's not a traditional plum. I was sort of overhooking a hand and then going to work with the other and then switching up, you know. But to answer your point, I just don't think it's a huge point of emphasis in training anymore. I think most folks have figured out that if you can just wrestle or anti-wrestle against the cage, that's a better way generally to go. But what I would say is anytime that there's this focus on one kind of thing as the uh, best practices you have to learn when you can then maybe, you know, reinvent what was old or, or somehow adapt something and make it new and fresh and exciting. You can then lord that over everyone who has a more conventional skill set. This is what Conor McGregor preaches all the time. This is why Conor McGregor deserves to be taken seriously way more than his critics take him seriously because the dude has thought like, well, gee, if I know how to do at least anti-everything conventional and then bring back non-conventional things or things that maybe once were in style but fell out of favor, uh, I can do a lot. I can make trouble for a lot of guys, and he is 100% correct. Totally, utterly, without equivocation correct. Um, so that's what I would say. I think people have gotten away from it because it's not essential. But as people fade away from it, if you can get those core best practices, you can bring that back. But the game just sort of moved away. I think guys got better at clinching. Guys got more aggressive with underhooking. Guys got more aggressive with takedowns against the cage. Guys have more takedowns against the cage than they used to. It's a it's a bit of a active. It's a, it's a it's a place that's as active as it is for stalling, as I mentioned before. And um, Matt Brown is just a special case because it's such a huge and heavy point of emphasis for him. Let me try something here real quick to make sure our audio doesn't get all jacked. There we go. All right. Back to it. UFC quiz. Who will be the champion about exactly one year play this quiz try to decide for the mma ultimate knowledge blah 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 blah. okay women's bantamweight rousey's and gano tate or cohea easy rousey women's strawweight in jacek torres gadelia esparza gadelia might be your dark horse there but i'll say in jacek a heavyweight i'll stick with velasquez light heavyweight i'll stick with jones middleweight i will stick with weidman welterweight i'm gonna change it all up and i'm gonna go hendrix there you go Lightweight, I'm going to go Nurmagomedov. Featherweight, in a year. I'm going to go McGregor for just doing it for fun. Uh, bantamweight. Um, Who will be the champion in a year? Cruz. Flyweight, still going to be Johnson. Uh, on the of the following options, which one would you like for, for, to be your honor, Jenjacek's next challenger? And which do you think the UFC will go with? Gedalia, the winner of Van Zant Herrig? No. Or the winner of Daily Marcos? I think they could probably go back to Gedalia. Nate Diaz. Luke, what are your thoughts on the surrounding the whole Nate Diaz situation? According to Nate, he was unaware of the UFC's plans to match him up with Matt Brown prior to the fight being announced. I just don't understand how it's possible for a fight to be announced without one competitor being remotely aware. Secondly, what is next for Nate? Brown fight off and Pettis versus jury booked. 
Well, in terms of what's next, I really don't know. It seems to me that the Diaz brothers are pretty sour on their MMA careers. Nick less so, but uh, – okay. Nate appears more sour. Nick appears just more finished. Now, I'm not saying he is finished. I'm just saying he's more along that path. Nate, I think, would like to fight under different circumstances. I think Nate – I don't know, man. It feels – some days it feels like he's looking for a, a better fight. Some days it feels like he's looking for um, to get out of his contract. Some days it feels like he's looking for a new contract. Some days it it feels like he's trying to just quit MMA. It's really difficult to tell. Here, I here's what I would say. I, I don't know what UFC did here. Did they do it to try and pressure him into signing? Well, if we go ahead and have Matt Brown sign, there'll be just this momentum and we'll have to get around to it. Is Nate not telling the truth? Um, I don't know, but what I would say is it appears like the relationship between Nate Diaz and UFC, while not certainly not irreparably, irreparably fractured is fractured enough that it's, it's quite problematic. Um, quite problematic. There are some serious issues here. He simply does not appear to trust them. Um, for better or worse, he does not appear to like what he's doing very much. Um, I think he still wants to compete in a general sense, but I think the terms of the competition from the requirements he's supposed to do to the compensation levels to everything else just so seems so utterly displeasing to him that, you know, unless it's the perfect scenario, he has very little interest and seems outright soured on the way things are conducted. Oh, here's a, did I not say this? Does the UFC hate Miles Jury? Why on the heels of a somewhat embarrassing loss would they feed him to a focused, angry Anthony Pettis? Are they just dead set against letting young, talented fighters develop? I love the fight as a fan, but the Cerrone fight demonstrated that Jury is by no means ready for Pettis. Right. If Jury is by no means ready for Cerrone, then maybe the UFC took a turn and said, maybe he's just not that guy. Maybe he's just not going to be that guy that develops into that guy. And until he does, we don't have to treat him that way. But... It could be a stern enough test for Pettis on his return to gradually ha have his takedown defense tested, and that might be enough. And, by the way, as I mentioned before, if Pettis comes in with the wrong kind of game plan or attitude or the right the sort of improper preparation strategically, um, it could blow up in his face too. So I think it's actually fairly intelligent matchmaking. Owen says, in my opinion – it's just the UFC's way to let, to let Nate Diaz know it's not up to him to choose opponents. Well, that's the funny thing about being an independent contractor. It actually is up to you. I know what you're saying, though. You're not saying that's how you feel, just how they might feel. The next dominant martial art. When the UFC started, it was quickly evident that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was a martial art more dominant than the rest when it came to pure unarmed combat. I believe it's safe to say that wrestling is now the most dominant martial art in MMA right now. Taking into account both of these martial arts are grappling-based and a storm of Dagestani fighters are surging through MMA, is it fair to say we may see Sambo take over as the most dominant martial art in maybe five to ten years' time? Or will wrestling remain king? And then someone says, I've also seen a Rousey's mom tweet that she would have preferred to learn Sambo over judo for MMA as well. Take that as you may. Um... Should I read this or not? 
I was texting, I mentioned this before, I was texting Daniel Cormier about uh, Nurmagomedov. I'll read you a part of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll read you, I'll read you, this is what Daniel Cormier wrote about Nurmagomedov, okay? Um, and I asked him about, like, what, I asked Cormier what, I said, beyond being good, what is special or unique about Nurmagomedov's wrestling? This is basically what he wrote. Quote, um, he's ridiculous. His top control is nuts. He is one of the strongest guys I've felt, and honestly, man, when he gets to the clinch, he is taking you down. He has unbelievable awareness and understanding of the clinch position. Now, that is without a kirka, uh, the, the jacket they wear in Sambo. Although, and there's no shoes either. Um, the Dagestani guys get labeled as all these Sambo guys, which they are. But it's there is a lot more wrestling influence, like pure on wrestling influence inside of Nurmagomedov's game. In other words, Nurmagomedov, what makes him special is for the reasons Daniel Cormier listed as well. But I mentioned this before. He like Sambo, Sambo and Judo have a lot of similar roots. Sambo was developed by this guy who actually was eventually killed um, because uh, Stalin was a, a paranoid lunatic. But it was it was created by a guy who had borrowed elements of Judo in it along with a lot of other things as well. Um, but that's sort of the point here, is that he has taken a lot of the skills that come in there, the combat sambo, so the striking, the clinching, the takedowns, the groundwork. Um, a lot of it is really directly applicable to MMA. Uh, I think a lot of jiu-jitsu now, I, I mean, a lot of it still is applicable, but a lot of it isn't. You know, leg lassos and stuff like that are just not particularly relevant. Um, you know, so that kind of thing. But... He's also got a lot of influences from other martial arts built into his style. So the Dagestanis are having a lot of uh, success, but it's not just to be like, well, Sambo is the next dominant martial art. Like it's this wave of Sambo coming in and taking over. Um, I do think that there's a lot to be said for Sambo, um, but I also think there's a lot to be said for Dagestanis and the kind of Sambo that they practice and the kind of intensity with which they train and prepare with and the kind of wrestling roots that they also have that you see guys like uh, Nurmagomedov bring in. I don't know exactly what sort of competition experience he has with pure wrestling, but certainly in the training environment, you can see clear signs of freestyle wrestling in there. Um, and so to me, that is really the dominant factor here. It's like, yes, you have a, a martial art like Sambo that has all phases of the game you can take to MMA, whereas Jiu-Jitsu does not. It's not in the same way. But at the same time, if it was just a Sambo guy, I, I would have some issues about his chances. It's they're taking that and like everyone else adapting it and mixing it with other things. So I guess but what I object to is the paradigm being shopped here that there's another martial art that's about to take over. It's really, it's not that exactly. It's, there's a uniqueness there. There's Sambo guys all over the world. Why is it the Dagestanis are winning? Right? It's, it's a different issue here. Um, these are insanely tough driven guys who have the most absurd <laughs> and challenging backgrounds that also have a very special and helpful martial art that they've combined with other things to make them quite the uh, potent force. True or false? 2015 edition. Jones Gustafson 2 will happen in 2015. False. 
Nick Diaz will fight in 2015. I will say true. I don't want to. I, don't, I just don't think he's done. Done. Anthony Pettis will be champion again in 2015. False. Conor McGregor will retire in 2015. False. A champion. I'm assuming you mean a UFC champion. Gets busted with steroids in 2015. I will say false. But man, wouldn't that be something? Ronda Rousey versus Misha Tate 3 in 2015. Now that actually seems pretty likable. I'll say true. 2015 will have at least three European champions with Joanna. We already have one. No. False. Three? Really? Cain Velasquez will fight at least two times in 2015. True. Chris Weidman loses the belt in 2015. I will say false. A super fight between two champions will happen in 2015. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, a super fight between two champions will happen in 2015. Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I'll say true, just for fun. Okay, two questions. One. In the wake of several fight cards being se severely damaged by injuries, in particular UFC 186, and also, I don't know what UFC was doing putting Rampage on that card, I've noticed that the organizations rarely, if ever, restructure a card's order, even if doing so would benefit the appearance of said card. For example, UFC 186, what sense does it make to leave Maldonado Boss, or Bosse, or however you pronounce his name properly, and Mac Desi Campbell on the main card when two relatively important women's fights are available to boost a depleted pay-per-view? Is this a matter of contract agreements? I'm trying to wrap my head around why orgs would want to dramatically move things around to improve a pay-per-view card if they could. I don't think they view that as an improvement. It's an improvement in the sense of what is a higher level fight, but I don't I don't get the belief like I don't think it's accidental that those guys are staying on the card. I think that those guys are probably expected to deliver I mean Maldonado. I mean, does he not I mean he gives you your dollars worth for better or worse. Uh, you know, and Magdesi Campbell, I don't know, but, um, you know, certainly you can understand why Maldonado is still on the main card. Uh, I think that when they establish that order, it takes a lot. They usually if like a, it, it, they bump up in a very linear way. Like if you're one position away on the way the fight cards listed, they'll bump you, but they don't just like mix and match like that. Right. Speaking of the women, it seems that unless you're Rousey Tate or the strawweight champ, the UFC has no interest in placing your fight on the largest platform possible. Uh, uh, Daly and Marcos are top 10 strawweights. One of them is coming off of a win, and they're being relegated to fight pass on a card that needs names. I think if the UFC believed that they it could benefit them by putting them on a higher portion of the card, they would do it. That's what I would say. Is there really, I mean, among hardcore fans, yes, but from the average consuming UFC John Q public, is there a ton of demand for Daly and Marcos? No. Is it unfortunate that we have top 10 strawweights, you know, relegated to this position? Of course. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think the UFC is like, well, you know, we could really do a lot by having these women fight at a higher level of the card. I think they're just like, eh, whatever. What's up, buddy? Um, so there you go. And with, now if your question is, do you deserve to be up top there? Uh, even if, you know, there's not necessarily public demand for it, you know, you can have that debate. I just wonder how far you'd extend that if, if you know, if that's the rule, if you can only have ranked fighters um, at the top of the card, you know, part of what the UFC needs is the flexibility to maximize the buck. Um, I would like to see them moved up. I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain, 
but I wonder if folks would be like, you put Maldonado versus Bosse or Boss on the on the fight pass. Why why would you why would you do that? That's what most fans want. Most fans, <laughs> sorry, they want to see. Like, as I was, it was in that Sam Harris interview with the guy, the English professor. They want to see trauma. That's your best chance of getting that is certainly with uh, Fabio Maldonado. Uh, here we go. Look, I've been thinking about this matchup, Luke Rockhold versus Leona Machida, all week. In recent memory, I can't think of a fight where I cannot work out who is going to win. How do you see this fight going? Is it as close as I think, or am I missing something? I think it's going to look relatively similar to Weidman versus um, Machida, except with a noticeable difference. I don't think there's going to be nearly as many takedown attempts. I think the kicking range of Rockhold either is or is not going to define how he wins, right? Because I don't think he has quite the hands that Machida or uh, that uh, Weidman does. Weidman's real skills come from there, uh, or not skills, I should say, real ability to make a difference in a fight comes from there. Um, not that Rockhold doesn't have those things, but just not to the same degree. So uh, that's what I would say. But let me make a note real quickly. If you ever run into a scenario, and this has happened to me, and it doesn't happen every time, but it happens with, I would say, a strong degree of regular or frequency. If you run into a scenario where you just can't quite figure out how a fight's going to go, you're like, I, mm, I can see this, but I can see that. It's usually going to be bat-s insane in the end. That is usually a very strong case. Come here, buddy. Ooh that is usually a very strong case that something crazy is going to happen. That something totally back and forth dramatic is going to happen. And I would not in any way be surprised if that happens here. What's up, Barbas? Fist, breath smelling like ass. <laughs> All right, come on. Yes, I know. All right. Jacare, does the Bisping fight make sense if both fighters come out on top in their respective contests? What other fights can be made for him to further him to a title shot? Y'all can call me crazy. I still want to see Jacare versus Romero. If they want to do Bisping because Bisping is more reliable in terms of like injury pullouts, or maybe he's not, but whatever the case may be, I still want I mean, there's something about that fight that has to get made, right? Weidman's biggest threat. Before the Machida fight, you weren't sure if Weidman was really good at you. Excuse me, you weren't sure what Weidman was really good at, seeing as he hadn't been tested or went to late rounds with a world class fighter. After that fight, you said he's deceptively good with distance and can stick to a game plan very well. How do you see Belfort, Jacare, Rockhold, and Romero possibly troubling him? What he need to do to beat them? Okay, this is the kind of question that is impossible to answer on a live chat because it takes forty five minutes to do. You want me to break down Weidman Belfort, Weidman Jacare, Weidman Rockhold, and Weidman Romero? <laughs> All in one question. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, no, this is way too much. Rampage conspiracy theory. Luke, do you think one of Zufa's motivations for offering Rampage Jackson a contract could have been to put him on the shelf. He was one of Bellator's most recognizable names. And after seeing the numbers Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner did, 
it isn't crazy to think that a fight between Rampage Jackson and Tito could have done even bigger numbers. Dana White has a history of having personal beef with the fighters, and after Rampage Jackson talked so much trash about Dana and the UFC, do you think it's possible that Zufa wanted to lure Jackson into a legal battle that would take him out of action? I don't think it's very conspiratorial. I mean, look, I think they signed him because they want him to fight, but even if they can't get him to fight, this is an obvious benefit. If you're in the courts, you're not in the cage. I don't think, I mean, listen, I actually asked um, uh, UFC uh, if I could talk to somebody about this and about their due diligence and the timeline about things because it's just none of a lot of this just doesn't add up for me. But, uh, and they, uh, in their words, politely declined to uh, grant that request, which is fine. Uh, I mean, that's common. But I don't think this is in any way conspiratorial at all. Again, I don't think they signed him thinking, oh, we'll never get this guy in the cage. Um, you know, I think they obviously had every intent. They put they put him on a card and they put money behind him. I think they had the intent to promote him. Okay, fine, but I don't think it's in any way crazy to think that like, well, look, worst case scenario, um, you know, he's going to be tied up. I don't think it's conspiratorial at all. Stephen Morocco, I think, said the exact same thing. Like, look, if this guy's in the courts, we can either win and take him, or we can win, or we can not win and lose. But in the interim, he's not over there with them. The question is, did Jackson realize that? That's that's what I don't quite get. But then again, you get back to the thing where it's like, how did you not see his contract? How come you haven't cut him yet? Like, no, no attorney. Like, why isn't Rampage cut yet when you think about it? Well, okay, look, you could say because they think that he's going to win. Okay, if every lawyer I've talked to thinks he hasn't going to, he has like no chance of, like zero chance of winning, okay? I mean, maybe Zufa's lawyers disagree. Maybe they think he does have a good chance. I don't know, but I find that very hard to believe. There's been other issues that I've consulted with lawyers on, and there's a you know range of opinions on things. Well, it could be this, and well, it could be that. Borderline unequivocal that you have to wonder why he hasn't been cut yet because they know something that we don't, uh, I guess. But to me, his case is clear. He clearly did not follow procedure on termination properly. And the judge in that case didn't even find that Bellator. I mean, she didn't make a finding, but she at least did not indicate that there was a lot of evidence for breach uh, on Bellator's side by not giving him a copy. Uh, it's There's a lot that doesn't add up here. So I think any kind of speculation until they defend, you know, explain themselves is perfectly reasonable here. Because why is he still signed? <laughs> right? Unless the object is to keep him in court, why is he still signed? Because he's not going to win. Unless you believe he's going to win, and maybe he will. I don't know. But, you know, how long is that going to take? Do you believe that DC was exposed mentally in the Jones fight? Or do you think his underwhelming performance in the late, latter rounds was strictly due to fatigue. Reason being, if DC was mentally exposed by Jones, which is my my theory, I'm not interested in a rematch. If there's some salient physical technical reason why a rematch could be more competitive, I'm in. What's your take? I often wonder what people mean when they say mentally exposed. What does that mean? This is like this these buzzwords we throw around. Like he was exposed. Exposed in what way? He got tired, and a and a guy who is might be the best fighter we've ever seen beat him. How is that exposing somebody? He didn't even crack. He didn't get finished. Uh, certainly, you could tell there was a bit of competitive spirit that was taken from him. 
Uh, and maybe that's what you mean. But to me, when you say exposed, what you're telling me is there was a weakness there all along that we never got to see. It has to do with his, his ability to compete mentally. And in some sense, there was a, a, a bit of a surrender there, or at least I won't say surrender because that's not true. Let me back that up. There was, I think, surprise. I certainly think an element of surprise. I don't think Daniel Cormier ever quit. I think that fifth round was very close. I think Jones w- was the clear winner and had done things that, you know, had um, challenged uh, Cormier's psyche. But I don't think, like, I think you're crazy if you think that Daniel Cormier doesn't think he can beat John Jones. I guarantee you Daniel Cormier thinks that. I think Daniel Cormier is chomping at the bit to prove it. Um, That's what I would say. I think that he wakes up and is not in – I mean, certainly he may have struggled with it for a time. Certainly the loss may have been devastating to him. Certainly all these things could have been problematic. Um, Hold on. But what I would never say – is that he doesn't think he can't get up again and, and, and make things different. Like, when you have the kind of competition experience that Daniel Cormier has, and I'm certainly almost way on his mind, too, that, like, he came really close and never got a gold medal or at least, you know, medal at all uh, in the Olympics and then, um, you know, didn't win a national title and then didn't hold UFC gold, although obviously he won a strike force belt. Um, I'm sure that weighs on his mind, too, is, like, who is this guy? Am I always destined to be just, just the guy behind the guy? But I don't think that has dampened his competitive spirit or self-belief. All of these guys lie to themselves. And sometimes they lie themselves into victory, and sometimes they just lie themselves just short of it. But they're all liars. And mentally, they're all liars. They're all, I can do this. I can beat this. I can beat this workout. I can beat this challenge. I'm better everywhere than he is. This is mine for the taking. No, it didn't go right that time, but I bet you I can do it again. I think Cormier won at least a round, if not two, against Jones. That's no small feat. Um, you know, Machida may have won the first round against Jones and then he got standing guillotined like things happen. So, so no, I don't think that, you know, mentally exposed is like, well, this is someone, if you push them to this limit, anyone can break them. No, I think that, um, I think that certainly he was surprised. I think that he was disheartened, but I don't think he is waking up being like, this is just not a task that I can manage. Not even for two seconds. Not for two seconds. I think he believes he can beat that guy. He just needs another chance to do it. And in wrestling, that's why they do that. Because you may lose, you got to get right back on the mat and compete again. And maybe someone you lost to, you beat him again. Um, but I don't. I don't think in any way he doesn't feel like this is something he can rise to the occasion to do. It's like it's just amazing to me. We had these conversations about guys who like are insanely mentally tough, mentally tough in ways. Like for example, uh, I'm going to New York after this and there's a new uh, jujitsu school up there called unity jujitsu. And it's the meow brothers. It's Marillo Santana on occasion. It's Leandro Lowe. It's a lot of the guys from Cicero Costa, Luisa um, Montero is there sometimes on uh, a Lowry. There's, there's a lot of people up there. Um, and they have a pro practice. And a buddy of mine is going to go up there, and um, he was like, yeah, you should go. I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want any part of that pro practice. He was like, it's not that you get thrashed 
technically, although you you know that happens on occasion, it was just that can you mentally get through the workout? You know, can you mentally get through? It? These are guys that do that kind of stuff from workout to peer pressure to media pressure to fights themselves and have made a career of it. If you think losing a couple of rounds where he didn't even take a, a horrible abuse is going to break someone like that, you're just kidding yourself. I think what he may have been dealing with is tremendous disappointment, you know, um, not being able to live up to his own expectations about his himself, but not in some sense where we're like, well, we discovered he has, he just turns into a little girl if you, you know, if you put pressure on him. No, uh-uh. I don't, I don't buy that at all. Uh, do you think Rockhold versus Dragon has could be a candidate for fight of the year? Well, let's see the fight first. But are there ingredients in place that could make it go the distance, have it be back and forth, have both guys take a lot and then give a lot? Yes, there is certainly that. Uh, what about this contest interests you the most technically, the kicking game? It interests me the most. Two different kinds of kicking, two different ways in which they use it that mean two completely separate things. Who's going to be able to use? I think really it's going to come down to that on both sides. Masvidal's tweet. Am I being too harsh or does Masvidal's tweet about coasting reveal that he has a loser's mentality? Let me see the tweet. Uh, doesn't exist. I guess he deleted it. Well, certainly I don't think he has a loser's mentality, but what I would say is um, I, I'm a little surprised at the way he reacted to the Iaquinta decision, saying I wouldn't do anything different. It's like, I get what you're saying. Like, you won, and I definitely think you won. No doubt about it. But I also think that my argument, you know, I'm sure he doesn't care, but I feel like that argument stands, that you're way better than these dudes. Why are these fights so close? They do not need to be this close. They really, truly don't. Uh, and that they're this way because you're making choices. Now, again, I, I, I'm with Masvidal. I think he got, you know, Worked out of a decision, but that makes very little sense to me. Let's see. Are the UFC and Fox doing enough? Is it just me or are the UFC and Fox not doing enough from a marketing standpoint to gain a, the biggest audience possible for these big Fox events? When this partnership was started, the assumption was this would be the UFC's attempt to reach out to the broader masses. But with the exception of those early events and a couple cents, the ratings have kind of stagnated. I don't see this as a function of card quality. The majority of the Fox cards have been quite good. But a matter of these events being under under marketed, your take. I am a little surprised at the marketing. I mean, yes, they air that road to the octagon on Sundays. Um, certainly, you know, we're doing football season. There's heavy integration. Uh, baseball season just got started. Although I'm not sure how much overlap there is with that audience. It's a much older audience. You know, I think the average. Did y'all see this in the Washington Post? The average baseball fan. I could be misstating this, but I think it's true. The average baseball fan is like close to 50. It's like wh what? that is old that is old uh okay um but here's here's my point it's like i don't this card is by itself bigger we would all grant that than the average fight night right by and large it's a great card even with the co-main event getting jacked up i think we can all say that so the ufc put their best foot forward outside the road to the octagon which is just really one show. And, of course, I think I've seen a couple of air ads on Fox Sports 1. I don't watch a lot of Fox, so maybe I'm speaking out of turn. 
but I just don't see a particularly special effort on their part to let it be known that that fight is happening. Uh, I'm sure Buzz will pick up. I'm sure in the end, I think the UFC's done what they could to deliver the right kind of card for the right kind of system and the right kind of event. But I'm with you a little bit. I, it seems relatively underwhelming. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Ortiz versus McGeary. Luke, I asked this last week and it was green, but you didn't get to it. With talks of this being the next title fight for Bellator led heavyweight, how do you see this fight going? I, for one, think Tito has a good shot. If Liam allows Ortiz to stay in his guard like he did, Newton will be in trouble. Uh, as Tito can mess people up without pa- passing from guard. I think that if this were maybe five, six, seven years ago, I'd be with you. I'm not so sure about that now. First of all, it's a five-round fight. I don't think Tito Ortiz can go five rounds. I think he could stop late. Secondly, um, even once he gets tired, his takedowns won't be that great. McGeary's takedown defense is not awesome, so I could see him losing a round or two. But what I would see is eventually him being able to stop a takedown and then banging Tito Ortiz out on the feet or at least doing enough to create problems underneath. Um, so, no, I don't favor Ortiz. I mean, favor Ortiz early, maybe in a three-round fight because he could steal the first two uh, rounds potentially. But after three, nah. Uh, True-false. If MMA gets licensed in New York, the first ever card at MSG would be better than UFC 187. True. I bet they're going to go all out. Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo will be the second biggest combat sports fight behind Mayweather-Pacquiao in 2015. I'm trying to think of all the things that are going to happen in 2015, whether that's fair. Um, I'll say false for now, but you could it could be true. Demetrius Johnson beats Silva's record for title defenses, 10, before he loses the belt. That's probably true. Lightweight division becomes the most stacked division ever when Aldo and McGregor move up. Lightweight's already the most stacked division ever. Uh, Rousey will leave MMA UFC temporarily to work with the WWE, but I don't I just don't give an F. True or false? Stop asking me. Like, if you're going to come here asking for wrestling questions, I'm going to ban you from the site, right? Because this is not the place for it. Just stop. It's so stupid. McGeary beats Rampage. True. Condit stops Alves. True. Rousey beats... Kid Yamamoto, like, could the question be dumber? Could Rousey beat a packet of pudding? Could Rousey beat Godzilla? I don't know. UFC 187 buys hurt by May pack fight. Ordinarily, I would say no. This one, I might say yes. Cyborg debuts in UFC this year. True. Nick Diaz fights again. I already asked. I'll say true. Ken Shamrock either fails a drug test or gets murdered against Kimbo. If you use gets murdered in the looser sense of the term, then I'll say true. I don't think he actually dies. Let's go to Twitter for just a second. No, you're killing me with some of these questions today, man. Uh... Someone says, I think uh, attitude that UFC hates jury is ill-conceived. Jury's being given a tremendous opportunity. That's the other part about it. Things have to go right for him. But if he beats Pettis, I don't think it's likely, but it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination. And if he does, he just beat Anthony Pettis. Like, this is not a, a terrible situation to be in. 
Uh, true or false? Cormier blasts through Bader. True. And Mighty Mouse gets knocked out. You mean like ever? I mean, I guess that's true. Given the current state of the heavyweight division, who do you see Krokop making? Do you see Krokop making a run? Is that you have to be kidding, right? <laughs> I wouldn't care what level of disrepair the heavyweight division was in. I do not see Krokop making a run. Please be serious. Uh, let's see. Habib, Kane, and Jones would be the best clinch cage workers. Yeah, probably. Uh, good question. Isn't it strange that the UFC announced Yoel Romero out of the bout, but they still released Road to the Octagon with him unedited? I thought about that. I think that there was such a key component of the airtime, they had no choice. What are they going to do? I mean, the program is supposed to air a certain amount of time. They had, didn't have substitute footage they can bring in there. It had been edited before that. They just had to ride with it. I feel bad for him. That part sucked, but what are you going to do? Uh, Luke, do you think the lack of wrestling pedigree in women's MMA is the biggest reason non-USA fighters have had more title success? The lack of wrestling. Um, that's probably a component. I don't think it's the component. Uh, three Euro champs this year. If you think Connor and Habib become champs 2015, it's quite a possibility. How does that work with Habib? Are we going to call that? I mean, I guess it technically it is if we're labeling Habib European. Um, culturally, though, it feels quite distinct, right? Uh, let's see. Mr. Brian D'Souza, can you discuss whether you were one of the first to suggest true journalism doesn't exist in MMA? Um... I think that was true years ago when I wrote it. I'm a little less convinced it's true now. Um, it's certainly a lot of time spent that we do on things that are less than investigative. But I actually, the more I think about it, I think, I think MMA journalism has typically gotten a lot better. I would say that from when I started to what it is now, it's just a lot better. I, I've gotten better. My peers who are already good have gotten better. Everyone's gone. I've kind of grown up a little bit. I think the other thing I would say is, you know, whether it's Bellator, UFC, World Series of Fighting, I think this is true generally. I cannot, and I can't stress this enough, I cannot tell you how much information and stories are out there that cannot get written because no one wants to go on the record truest statement ever ever all for any number of different stories for, for years things come up oh i just don't want to go on the record up not on the record not on the record you can't go forward so i mean they could, that's different than someone just saying well you can you know don't quote me but you can use it no 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 off the record meaning you can't use it and then they won't give you documentation and so the story just dies or it just sits there until something changes about it. This happened. You talk to every single reporter. Oh, I just oh, I can't go on the record. Oh, I can't go on the record. Over and over and over and over again. There's a story I'm working on now. No one will go on the record. <laughs> so I can't. I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. I have no idea. I really and truly have no idea. Um, and I think that hampers everybody. Oh, by the way, it's official. Phil Davis has signed with Bellator. Multi-fight contract. Wow. Phil Davis officially signs with Bellator. PR Bellator press release. Did I get it? Let's see if I got a copy. 
Yes. It's a wonderful day at Bellator. Proud to announce the signing of Phil Davis. There's a picture of him signing the contract. Bellator MMA is pleased to announce the signing of the sixth-ranked light heavyweight in the world. Rankings according to SureDog.com. That's funny. Uh, Phil, Mr. Wonderful Davis, to an exclusive multi-fight deal. Quote, I can't wait to be fighting in Bellator and wreck shop on everyone, said Davis. I'm the absolute best and most dominant grappler to ever fight in MMA, and I'm excited to get in there and comp compete at my new home. Uh, then they give a bit of a bio, name all the guys he's won. They say he's a member of Alliance. He trains with stars like Michael Chandler and Joey Beltran. Um, Phil is a world-class mixed martial artist, and we are very happy to be adding him to our, ours capitalized, roster of some of the best light heavyweights in the world, said Scott Coker. Bellator remains fully committed to building its world-class roster by signing top free agents like Davis, as well as grooming up-and-coming stars. We've got some amazing matchups in mind for Mr. Wonderful that we will be announcing in the weeks to come. Bellator's light heavyweight division is one of the deepest in the promotion. This is their words, not mine. With stars like McGeary, Tito Ortiz, King Mo Lawal, Quentin Rampage, Jackson, uh, Emmanuel Newton, and Linton Vassal. Boy, they, I tell you what about these. Here's what I'll say about these Bellator uh, uh, press releases uh, under uh, Scott Coker, and I guess maybe before, but I've noticed it more. Boy, they. They got they got some balls over there at Bellator. I mean, not that they're not wrong exactly, but yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I'm a little surprised at the um, uh, at the signing. If I'm being honest, I guess he's still good enough. It's like he's obviously. A, I mean, Phil Davis is obviously a super talented guy, but I kind of thought they would want someone who's a little more action oriented but i guess against the guys at that level he can be so maybe that's the thought i don't know uh let's say weidman defends his title and jacare and rockhold win then who gets the title shot maybe you can have those guys fight again i don't know talking about under promotion of fight cards do you think the ufc spent so much on aldo mcgregor that it affects the rest yeah well, i think there's a general sense about that uh, and I like – I've said it before, I, li I like it. I like that they go all in on certain cards, and they just kind of let other cards do what they're going to do. I, I'm much happier with that. I'm much happier than with this sort of general malaise where we're going to try and make everything the most special thing ever. No, 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 no. Make the special thing special and let other things just be what they are, and I think that's okay. Uh, okay, future of combat sports and television. Luke. Uh, what do you think is the future of combat sports and television? The Super Bowl, NCAA football, and basketball had record ratings this year, but how does combat sports fit into the bottom line of TV networks and pay-per-view? More people are looking to cut the cord, but as a fan of combat sports, we have more options than ever. Pay-per-view from cable, UFC boxing, pay-per-view online like jiu-jitsu, free national TV like on Fox, PBC. Is combat sports holding its own against the likes of the NFL, MLB, NBA, and NASCAR? They're not holding their own, but they're providing enough in an era. In fact, it's because it's live sports that they help against the cord-cutting phenomenon. I would have cut my cord, too, but for um, sports. So, for example, Mayweather versus Pac-Man is supposed to generate close to $400 million, but I haven't really, it hasn't really moved the needle for CBS, Time Warner, or MGM in terms of stock price. Uh, these are not things I've monitored. Um, also, stock price is affected by you know, much more larger phenomena than this uh spike is giving away full glory cards a week after the event online not even a week the day after without any lead-in advertising videos how does that make sense seeing as viacom had to have huge write down recently yeah the write down is important but the re what they figured out if you read the, well, the between the lines 
Viacom found portfolio wide, so those would go for MTV and other places that they didn't they didn't get the same kind of value that they wanted in other reruns, or at least the same kind of value that they were accustomed to. And so they just said, you know what? Rather than just sort of worry about what we're going to get on reruns, I mean, we we might still air them. Let's put some of this content online, and they're doing that. You'll see my opinion is like OPEC and that they keep pumping out events despite the slowdown ratings. Are they just trying to keep the market cap and hope some of the smaller companies can't keep up and eventually gobble them up? I definitely think that part of the idea is to put so much product out there that no one else can break through. Um, how did NCAA Wrestling Tourney do for ESPN? I believe they showed the whole tourney, not just the finals this year. It didn't do as good as two years ago, but did slightly better than last year, up, I think, 10%. Um what is the big picture with combat sports? I don't think there is a big picture. I don't think some of them are meant to last. I think partly it's to prevent the cord cutting. I think uh, in the case of UFC, it delivers uh, uh, you know young men, which is hard for advertisers to reach. And so the question is, what you know, provided they still have a certain value to them, either to stop the rate of cord cutting or to get people all, you know on or off the DVR, depending on your perspective of what is preferable to you, or to reach the you know coveted markets that are hard to reach. Combat sports have a value there. But beyond that, I don't know there's a larger sort of lesson here. Um, is Pacquiao versus Mayweather w worth it for me? I spent my money on a lot of UFC, including the WEC one, but I've never bought or even paid for a, a lot of attention to boxing. However, the May 2nd fight has me intrigued. I know your answer to this is usually if you buy it, um, if you like it, buy it. If you don't, then don't. I'm just wondering if you think this fight has enough going on for for an avid MMA fan who doesn't pay attention to boxing is worth a hundred bucks. I think this is what I would say about Mayweather Pacquiao. And I'm going to be careful in this one too, because I don't think the rest of the card is that great. But what I would say is this is not an average UFC pay-per-view where I, you know, buy it if you like it, don't if you don't, you know, vote with your dollars. This one's a little bit different than voting with your dollars because it's such a pop culture phenomenon. Like if you personally don't decide to buy it, they're not going to feel it. This is not about sending a consumer response to them, you know, not, at least not in the same kind of way. That's why I tell you, if you like something, you need to let them know. And if you don't, you also need to let them know so that you can, as a consumer and your preferences help adjust what the product actually becomes. That's why I say that this is different, right? This is a window into history. And so for those reasons, I know it's a hundred bucks and you may, and the fight may end up being a stinker. I don't think that it'll be I don't think it'll be bad, but you just never know. You just never know, right? So what I would say is I would argue that you should buy this one only for its historical value, not as a matter, as I aforementioned, as it relates to MMA fans' direct relationship with UFC, where you're giving them feedback about consumer preferences. Um, impossible to judge. Yes, it is. There was one I wanted to get to real quickly before we end here. I'll jump back up. Can we admit there is no fix to the ultimate fighter? I still watch tough when I can, but there are countless threads, articles, and tweets about what to do to fix it. There is no fixing it. This is his words, not mine. The market is just saturated. I looked back at the amount of UFC events before the ultimate fighter season one finale and the ultimate fighter season four finale. There were 22 events in total in that span from April 9th, 2005 to November 11th, 2006. 25 events in 19 months. There were 21 events between the Ultimate Fighter 19 and the Ultimate Fighter 20 finales. The time span between those was five months, July 6th, 2014 to December 11th, 2014. There are so many other MMA options on TV now that the appeal of a weekly show to watch marginal fighters, and honestly, most of them are just that with some exceptions, has waned. Am I wrong thinking that it doesn't matter if it's champion will be crowned or team versus team? 
The interest is only there on a passing basis now because of the availability of the product in other forms. This is 100% correct. And let me just make a broad point about this. The UFC baffles me sometimes, right? Because you can look at them and you can say, man, this is such an innovative product. There's so, so many bold decisions that they make from the way they do production in-house to the, 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 the cleverness with which they made UFC Embedded and then lifted UFC Embedded out of Fight Week and did that promotional tour, which they used Embedded to highlight. Super creative, bold choices that they make, right? And the way they're constantly sort of updating their graphics packages and trying to bring in statistics. There's so much about what they do that when you look at them, you're like, wow, this is a really, truly forward-thinking, iterative sports company. And then they do things like keep using face the pain. And then they do things like keep bringing the ultimate fighter, which I just don't get. <laughs> I think that it has value for Fox, but there's a lot of UFC content that exists because Fox needs it. UFC also needs it to an extent, but it like there's not necessarily a demand for it. I mean, there's enough consumer response to keep it alive. But it's not like this organic, we've got to, man, we've got to get this out. Like if like if they didn't bring a show to Fairfax, would people have cried? No. I mean, they were happy to have it, and it did okay. It did, did fine. It did fine. But, like, it wasn't like, oh, man, you have to go to that show. Now, I think the Jersey show is a little bit different this weekend. But, I mean, here's my point. It's not that I don't want – here's my point. I'm not against the UFC having this kind of television presence on Fox Sports 1 or wherever they end up after the next contract or whatever the case may be. I understand the value of having the UFC brand on TV for that many weeks in a row and, and attracting those kinds of eyeballs and what it does for their partners at Fox Sports 1 and Fox generally. I get it. But what I would say is, it's to your point, this cannot be iterated back into being interesting the half-life is already so broken down to the point where it's no longer a reversible process. It's time for something new. And you can call it something else or whatever the case may be. The UFC has shown the ability to, to iterate, to make, create, to make and create interesting, awesome new things. Um, it's, it's, it's much harder to keep something else alive than it is to just let it go and start something new. And that could fail too. You know, there's all, failure is always an option. And I guess they're a little bit worried about that. Like if we try to get something new, it just won't be as accepted. Okay, then maybe that's the idea here. Um, but I made this point on my radio show and then I'll get out of here. My sister had a restaurant and she had owned it with, uh, who was then my brother-in-law and they got a divorce and they still tried to work out the restaurant together. It didn't quite work. And so it was a time where the restaurant was suffering and then they all separated. So now it's my brother and my sister who run it. And what she had told me was sort of like a really interesting story, which was there was a time there where they were kind of like sort of struggling. Um, and now they've since reversed it and it's doing well and I'm super proud of them and the restaurant's a huge success and everything's great. So it has a very happy ending. But her point to me was it would have been much easier if they just shut it down and, you know, redid the menu and opened up under a new name than it would have been than what they did, which was try to keep the name afloat. Now, it worked, but it was super painful to get there. And so I just feel like that name is weighing them down. Like maybe maybe they have iterated it to something new, you know. I don't think they have. I think it's also a content issue. But in addition to being a content issue, the branding 
is now, you know, I'm not saying it's a liability in a hardcore way, but it doesn't uplift in the same way as it could be either. And that to me is problematic. Okay, we have to get out of here. I want to thank everyone for watching. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can get me on Facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. I just got verified on Facebook, so that's been fun. Um, I will be on the MMA beat tomorrow, as will the uh, A-team, I believe. That'll be 5 p.m. on MMAfighting.com. Lots of coverage coming your way today, tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday for UFC on Fox 15. So until next time, for Barbus, stay frosty. Thank <laughs> you.